we've been in a church series for the past few weeks. Uh, and so I think it's important for us to uh, kind of give a brief recap of what we've learned um, earlier this year when we went through the first half of Second Corinthians. Um, and chapters one through six um, is where Paul recounted with us his ministry pains uh, as he wrote a letter to the Corinthians to rebuke them. Uh, and he wanted them to 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 answer uh, for these these questions that he had. Um, and today we're we're jumping back into the second half of Second Corinthians to carry us through till uh, later on this year. And we we do want to finish this book. Um, but what we went through was that uh, the the Corinthians had been uh, following these these teachings uh, and these uh, accusations uh, that have basically uh, come against Paul. Uh, in his ministry, where uh, these accusers would say, hey, Paul can't be an apostle of Christ uh, because he's suffering so much. There's no way God would have let his own apostles suffer this much. Uh, there was personal attacks uh, where, you know, we saw, as Stephen read in, in verse 2, he had to basically say, we wronged no one, we corrupted no one, we uh, have not taken advantage of anybody. And so basically, they've thrown all these accusations against him and his character, uh, and they're basically trying to take uh, these Corinthians away. Um, and, and Paul makes it very clear, uh, my weakness as an apostle, my weakness as a human, actually points to the sufficiency and the grace of God and actually makes God more beautiful. Uh, and in, in other words, my, my pain has purpose. Uh, the, God uses it uh, to, to accomplish his goals. Uh, and you, you get a sense very clearly of how deeply this hurts Paul uh, because this is a church he planted and yet now he's facing accusations from his own people. Um, this is a personal wound. And here we get to chapter 7, and it's a very confusing uh, passage because after saying all that for six chapters, he says, I am overflowing with joy. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. But that doesn't make any sense, right? You just If someone was to say to you, I'm afflicted and I am overjoyed, that sentence doesn't seem to make any sense. Right? Affliction is suffering, it's burden, it's pain. How does that produce joy? I know for myself, if I was in his position, I would be a complete mess. Joy would be the last thing on my mind. The affliction, the pain, that's, that would be what would be pressing upon me. And, and I think that's something we need to, to fixate our hearts on today. Uh, something we need to learn from Paul is how are we to be like him in this way? How are we to be joyful in the midst of suffering? How are we to be joyful, especially in the context of ministry? Because he's speaking from the context of someone who's hurting in ministry. Uh, and I want to be clear here. We're not just talking about vocational ministry, uh, about pastors and missionaries, but we're talking about the ministry that God calls each of us to, which is to make disciples of all nation, right? It's to love others. This ministry is loving others. It's commanded of all of us. It's what Jesus told us to do uh, and set an example for us to follow, which was sacrificing for other people, loving them with a servant heart, right? sharing the good news with them, uh, and caring for their well-being. And so that's the ministry uh, that, that is asked of each of us. Uh, and so three ways uh, I want to focus our, our attention today uh, is how uh, joy involves others. All right, Joy is found in repentance, and joy is shared. All right, It involves others. It's found in repentance and it is shared. First off, joy involves others. We see this outward focus uh, towards others in how Paul interacts with Titus and the Corinthians. All right, look with me at, at verse 3. I do not say this to condemn you, 
For I said before that you are in our hearts, to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. All right. And so, uh, as we just said, all right, Paul is greatly concerned for these Corinthians, and that's why he wrote uh, uh, this lost letter uh, uh, to them. And he says, I, I want to make sure you guys understand, I'm not writing to condemn you guys, uh, because we see that he says, you are in our hearts, to live together, to die together. In other, sen- in other words, in essence, I believe in your salvation. I believe that we are united by the blood of Christ. We are one people. All right? Yes, you have hurt me, but I still love you deeply. I'm certain of your salvation, despite the pain that they have caused them. And he says, I find comfort in you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. I, in all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. That's not the resolution that we expect. And somehow, Paul finds comfort. Paul finds joy in the midst of all that he is going through. Right, that's, that's the mystery that we need to solve here. And then, then Paul talks about his heart for Titus in verse 5. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and, fight and fear within. Right, and this, this actually brings us back to chapter 2, uh, where, where Paul tells us that he, he was missing Titus. Right? He had sent Titus uh, first with this letter to the Corinthians to deliver his rebuke against them. And then he lost uh, a connection with Titus. Right? And this is not the day and age uh, of texting and email. Uh, he had to go physically deliver the letter. And as he went off, he heard nothing back. Right? And, and uh, we, we found this in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, where, where he said, My spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. And so there's this, this internal conflict that he's dealing with, where he's wondering, is my friend okay? Is my brother okay? Right? Uh, these are, this is the time where, where uh, there, were, there were robbers, there were thieves, there were people who would uh, kill you and steal your stuff on the way to your destination. And he was uncertain about t- uh, Titus's uh, uh, travels or his well-being. Right? And so there was also external conflict, uh, possibly uh, a conflict from the Jews or the pagans who were opposing him. In other words, there was just so much affliction going on. But in all this affliction, we see his heart for the Corinthians and their repentance and there's also his heart for Titus in his safety and his well-being. And the good news for Paul is that he wasn't left to suffer in his affliction. Look at verse 6 and 7 with me. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the coming comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. And so here we see God's twofold comfort for uh, Paul and his afflictions. First off, the coming of Titus. He finally appeared, right? Uh, he's been waiting so long and, and you can imagine that, that moment of finally seeing Titus come down the road, right? Maybe a little dusty, maybe a little beat up, but in one piece, right? And you feel his relief, his joy overflowing because his brother as well is alive, right? We also see uh, the news of the Corinthians' uh, response to Paul's letter, which is the best news possible, Right? It says they, were, they had longing, they had mourning and zeal for Paul. In, in other words, they were, is that my phone? It, I don't know. It could be my phone. I'm not sure. Uh, but this is the best news possible, right? He sent this letter of rebuke, and then he gets this response that they have actually accepted his rebuke. They reassure Titus. They're saying, we, we hear you, and we have not turned against you, and we have not turned against 
Jesus, which is what Paul was fearing this whole time. He's thinking to himself, you have to understand, Paul was not afraid that they would turn against him, but in in the, the, the very core of his fear is that if they turn from his teachings about Christ, they would essentially be rejecting Jesus, the one whom they claim to have placed their hope in, their, their, their trust in. They were, in fact, regretful for hurting him. This was the best news possible. God comforted him in every way that he needed. And because of these two things, Paul rejoices all the more. And it's important to note there, I, I think, just to, to fixate our, our, our eyes on the fact that God is the God of all comfort. This is the same idea that he, he, he wrote about in chapter 1, right? where God is the God of all comfort who comforts the downcast. He recognizes who is the true source behind this comfort. Whether it was the, the comfort of, of seeing Titus, the comfort of the Corinthian repentance, it was all God. Right? And it's clear here. Paul's joy, his comfort, it's tied to other people. It's tied to those outside of himself. Now, it's, it's also obvious that they are the source of his pain. <laughs> the Corinthians and Titus, like, yes, loving them has caused him pain. And you might think reading that like, well, the smart thing would, then would be to cut off everybody. Why love people if that hurts you? But the obvious answer is that to cut ourselves off from people, right? in order to avoid pain, that would actually be to reject the very call of Christ, to love people, to serve people, to be their uh, uh, examples of, of, a, of a, an unconditional love that we receive from Jesus. It's so tempting for us to go down that, that path to just ignore people, and yet the clear call of Christ is to love them as we love ourselves, to put their needs before our own. Yes, it's messy. It's painful to love others. But yet what Paul recognized and what he's trying to point out to us is that while it does bring pain, loving others also is the source of our joy. It's the source of our comfort, right? His joy overflowed in receiving Titus. It overflowed at the godly response of the Corinthians. What he's recognized and what he's now pointing out to us is that joy in ministry comes from loving people. I experienced this uh, uh, in our a high school ministry uh, where we've been meeting with the high school seniors uh, for the past few years as they're heading off to college. Uh, my wife and I, uh, along with some brothers in our church, we, we've meeting, been meeting with them on a weekly basis to prepare them for all that comes uh, in college uh, as, as they head off. Uh, and it, it's gone for, for uh, multiple years. Uh, we study the Bible together. Uh, we walk through several topics uh, that they might encounter, drugs, partying, uh, existential crisis, all that fun stuff. Uh, and we walk through these things and we basically ask them the question, how does the gospel apply? How does it apply to your life in, in all these situations? And, and they've been incredibly fruitful discussions. And yeah, I got to be honest with you. It's not always easy, right? Uh, we went through it with, with a COVID, uh, you know, the COVID stuff, right? And, and we couldn't see them. So we had to meet with them online. Then another crew we had to bring into our backyards because we couldn't meet at church. Uh, and, and then, you know, I had a baby. That makes it very hard to have a good conversation. Uh, and, and, you know, all these different pains and burdens uh, that made it difficult. And it would make us wonder, like, oh, is this worth it? I'm not sure. I'm so tired. One of us is talking. The other one's carrying the baby. Right? And then the, the baby's, like, distracting all the kids because he's, he's cute. You know, can't help it. Right? COVID's so difficult. 
struggling with so much. You know, we're talking to the kids. They've suffered so much. They've lost their, their, their whole senior year. They don't have prom. They don't get to see their friends. And yet what happened after every week as we met with these kids, we would talk afterwards, the teachers, uh, and we would be overcome with this joy, overwhelmed with this joy, because we would see these kids grow. We'd see them begin to ask questions about their own faith. They begin to wonder about Jesus. They begin to see very clearly how God played into their, uh, you know, not just a part of their life, but was the center of their life. And as we saw this, we would, uh, you know, recount all the ways we were seeing God was working and we would rejoice together. And it was this great, amazing uh, joy that, that made it very clear to us that it was worth it. At every moment was worth it. We were recognizing what Paul has recognized here, that joy in ministry comes from loving others, pouring into them. And now uh, we actually get to serve alongside of some of these kids who have graduated. We serve alongside them in youth. We serve alongside them in camptoons. We serve alongside them, you know, all throughout the church. And it's this amazing, amazing joy. And basically what we need to realize here is that when we obey God, we discover joy. And so question for us now, who are we investing in? Who are you investing in? Who are you loving on? Because this seems to be how God has designed us. And it's very easy to answer this question because the question that you simply need to ask yourself, who, when you see prosper, causes you to rejoice? All right, when you see these people prosper spiritually, do you rejoice in their prosperity? Do you rejoice when you see them growing? And this is a joy that's only known to a heart that has that, that involves others, that, that, that invests in others. It's a heart that celebrates the well-being of others. And it is a joy that is foreign to the self-centered heart. All right, it seems counterintuitive, but I think we know this to be true. The more often we try to focus on ourselves, the more we live for ourselves, the more unhappy we seem to become. I think this is according to how God has made us to be people who give, who people who love, people who serve. And as a result of loving on others, we actually receive the joy that he designed us to receive. What is your heart revealing to you? And for those of us out here, the servant hearts who are afflicted and suffering in pain, right? I, I don't, I'm not going to say I know your pain. Uh, nor will I trivialize, trivialize it, but I, I simply want you to, to, to see what Paul uh, sees here. Is that God knows your pain. And this God is a God of all comfort. All right, whether you are burdened by the uh, you know, diagnosis of, of your dearest friend with, with cancer, or you're suffering as you're slandered by the people you love, all right? or you're grieving as you see your child walking away from the faith, whatever it may be, God understands and he knows your pain. And he is the God of all comfort who comforts you in your affliction. And that's his promise to you. Doesn't mean he'll give you exactly what you want. Doesn't mean uh, that these pains will go away. But what you can be sure of is that he will do what he knows is best. And he will take care of you through it. That's what he says when he says he's God of all comfort. He will be there to be the balm for your hurting soul. And he will make sure that he will use that pain to do greater things than you and I could ever imagine. And it's in that promise that we actually find the, the overflowing joy that, that Paul is talking about. And knowing that it is a purposeful pain 
and it is a pain that will not have the last word because he will. Second, joy is found in repentance, right? We see Paul here is rejoicing when he sees how the Corinthians respond to his letters in, in, in verse eight and nine. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that, it, that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you, set, you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. Right? We see Paul is so conflicted. Right? He sent the letter to, to rebuke them uh, in hopes of their repentance, but it hurt him in knowing that he hurt them. And then he also says, but I wasn't. I, I didn't regret it because what I wanted was for you to turn from your ways. I wanted you to repent. And when he saw that, that this grief of theirs in receiving his letters produced repentance, he overflowed with joy. He rejoiced because they experienced a godly grief. In verse 10, he gives them the difference between this godly grief and a worldly grief. Verse 10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Right? It's, it's this recognition that he has, uh, that they have, uh, that one has done something wrong and needs to repent, turn. It's a recognition of sin. This is what godly grief is. That's why he has all this, this list in verse 11 uh, of how they're turning and how they're repenting. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. In other words, they saw their need to turn. They saw their need to change. Uh, J.I. Packer, a theologian and pastor, put it this way. Realistic recognition that we have wronged God, regretful remorse at having dishonored God, reverent requesting of God's pardon, resolute renunciation of sin, requisite restitution for those we have hurt. And he puts it in, you know, uh, all our, our form. Uh, it tells us, remember uh, what it looks like to truly repent. It's realizing we have done something wrong against God. We've dishonored him. We, we have remorse for, right? We ask for forgiveness. We, we, we make clear that we want to fight our sins and then we seek to right the wrongs that we have done. This is what godly grief does to us. It leads us to repentance, which leads to salvation without regret. Why? Because ultimately it points us to the need of forgiveness, for the, the need of Christ. And there's no regret in following Jesus, is there? And this is what Paul hoped for when he first wrote his letter to them, not to grieve them for the sake of grieving them, but for the sake of grieving them towards repentance, is to transform them towards life. On the flip side, there's worldly grief. All right, it's a, a, a grief that is not from regret over sin, but regret for being caught. You know, if you have kids and you ever catch them red-handed for doing something they're not supposed to do, that grief they have is not oftentimes godly grief. It's, oh darn, I got caught. I say sorry because I got caught. Next time I'll try harder to not get caught, right? That's, that's their mentality. That's worldly grief. That's in each of us. Our kids are just not as good as hiding it. But worldly grief has no remorse for having sinned against God. There's no recognition that I've done wrong against God. Rather, it is, man, I got caught. It's shame and anger for being called out and exposed. This grief is full of self-pity. And that's why it leads to death. Because it, not, it does not conclude with our need for Jesus, but rather an increased 
effort in hiding our sins. It points outward. It blames others. But thankfully, what Paul is saying is, you guys have experienced godly grief, not worldly grief. And as a result of their grief and their repentance, he is comforted. Look at verse 12. So although I wrote to you, it was not for, your, for the sake of the one who did the wrong, before, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. All right. Seeing their transformed hearts, their repentance is enough for Paul. Right? Even though with his affliction, his pain, his suffering, right, the, the very news that they've repented and recommitted themselves to Christ is enough for him. And he's overjoyed. He rejoices. Uh, this brings to mind uh, something that happens at our youth retreats uh, on an annual basis uh, where we take our kids up to usually Santa Cruz uh, for a weekend. And it's a, it's a marathon, literally from, from sunset to, no, sun, sunset to sunrise. We're going. Like all these counselors are pouring out hours after hours um, and, and they work uh, to, to talk with these kids, to, to worship alongside of them, to hear the message. Um, and it's incredibly tiring. Um, and what we do at nighttime uh, at 10 o'clock, maybe something I need to work on in terms of planning, but after we put the kids in a room to go, you know, uh, eat snacks and, and get, you know, drunk off cup of noodles, uh, we have all the counselors gathered together, uh, and we talk and we basically recount the day and we share how we've seen God working. And it's this incredible moment where all of us are tired we smell, all right, this past year, the, 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 the location, uh, we lost power. There was no heat. There was no hot water. It was about 30-something degrees every day. We're all tired, stinky, frustrated. And yet, when we sit there and we start hearing how God is working, how, oh, this kid is now turning, realizing their own sin. This kid is uh, repenting for the sin he's committed against his friends. This kid is, is now uh, realizing how sweet Jesus' grace is. Like, those moments produce this joy that is unlike anything else. I don't care if I'm tired. I don't care if I, I smell like death. This doesn't, though, none of those things matter. In those moments, that joy fills that room and it fills our hearts and we're able to continue going on. That joy overflows. It tells us that it was worth all of it, all the pain, all the suffering. As I think just a, a little scene of, of what, Paul is talking about here where his pains, his afflictions are meaningless in comparison to the joy of seeing his people repent and turn back to God. And some things to, re- to consider regarding repentance and joy. It takes a very special outward focused heart to receive and, and enjoy this, this joy. Right? As the Apostle John said in 3 John, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. It seems like a simple statement, but, but when you see what he's saying, I have no greater joy. In other words, that is my greatest joy. That's the thing I desire the most. The thing that fills me the most is to see God's people turning. It's to see God's people walking in the truth, walking with Christ. There's no greater joy. Nothing is worth more. Nothing I desire more. And that's how Paul, that's how John can both say, even in the midst of pain and suffering, I am fine. In fact, I'm rejoicing. And this is a joy that only makes sense to a heart that is not self-centered. Because a heart that is self-centered cannot celebrate the prosperity of others, especially spiritual prosperity. I don't know if you ever encountered this. I think this is 
prevalent within churches, within many of us, where there's this self-righteousness, where our seeks, our hearts seek to compare. We hear about the good news of someone else repenting. We hear about the good news of someone else turning from their sins. And yet our question is, well, I don't know. I doubt they're really Christian, right? They still struggle with this. They still struggle with that sin. Are they really Christian? That, that's a heart that is not celebrating the repentance of others, but rather is seeking to outdo them by saying, hey, I'm holier. That's wrong. That's a self-centered heart. That's a heart that does not celebrate the good news changing the lives of others. This, this is a heart that responds with skepticism and doubt, and that's, that's a heart that will not enjoy the repentance of others. I think the question for you, for me, is can we say with John, can we say with Paul, I have no greater joy than this than to see my brothers walking in the truth. Also, another question is, have you experienced this godly grief before? Have you personally experienced this godly grief? Because when Paul says godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, he's saying that godly grief is necessary for salvation. You cannot experience salvation without first realizing how you have hurt God. You can't experience salvation without recognizing you've lived in rebellion against him, without recognizing your own sins, without recognizing your need for forgiveness, without recognizing your need for Jesus to save you, without recognizing you need to lay down your pride and seek to make things right with those whom you've harmed. Worldly grief does not cut it. Just feeling bad for for being caught as a sinner does not save you because it does not lead you to Christ. It actually leaves you to, to more self-preservation. And that's why he says it leads you to death because it points you back to yourself, not Christ. What grief have you experienced? Right? And have you, I guess, have you come to the point of recognizing your own brokenness and need for salvation is the real question, the core question. And the thing is you, you recognize very clearly when there is genuine repentance because it produces something in you, doesn't it? Right? It produces transformation. Uh, I've been reading uh, Tim Keller's uh, biography, uh, and, and um, his friend, his college friend, was recounting when he had been walking with Tim as, as a young college student where, when Tim was not yet a, uh, a believer. And this, Tim Keller was a pastor uh, who just passed away, but, but someone who's been very influential in, in the evangelical scene um, in the last uh, few decades. Um, but as Tim Keller was walking through college and trying to wrestle with his parents' faith, uh, which he did not agree with at that time, his friend noticed this change in him. Uh, his br friend Bruce says this, if you asked about whether there was a change in Tim, there sure was in college. He was a heck of a lot kinder. You could reach him emotionally. All of a sudden, he was present. He was there. Right? There was this vis very visual, very visible, noticeable change in his character. Right? It's not just a matter of saying, I prayed the prayer I go to church. I make sure I don't swear online. All right? like, what happens when you experience godly grief? Your whole heart transforms. There's a change in who you are. It's not forced upon you, but it comes from the inside out, and it's an internal transformation that incurs. It is blatantly obvious, my friends. Have you experienced that grief that produces this change in you? It's a breakdown of your pride. There's a newfound humility. There's this genuine determination to become a different person made in the image of Christ. And most of all, there is joy. Is there that joy in you? 
Because that worldly grief, grief does not produce joy, but that godly grief produces an everlasting flowing joy that does not stop. Have you experienced this joy of repentance? Finally, joy is shared. All right, look at verse 13, the second part. Beside our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boast I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. All right, it's clear why Titus was filled with joy. Right, he was the bearer of Paul's letter. And, you know, honestly, I'm reading this thing and, and I, I'll be honest with you, I am a conflict avoidant person. Uh, it's in my nature and I run as fast as I can from, from conflict. But this guy is literally carrying the letter of rebuke from of the Apostle Paul to an entire church in Corinth. That's terrifying. If I was Titus, I would go there, check to see when the church is open on Yelp, and then I would go in an off hour, drop the letter off in the mailbox, and then head back home as fast as I can. I mean, can you imagine coming up here and reading, hey guys, this is Paul. Let me rebuke you now. Like, I, I feel for him. And so you, you can imagine Titus going to the Corinthians, delivering this with this incredible weight and burden upon his shoulders. And with incredible relief and joy, he receives not scoffing, not slander, right? They don't pick him up and just toss him outside but they received him with fear, with trembling. In other words, they received his word as if it was the word of God. They recognized that what they were receiving was godly rebuke and they repented. And so he's receiving this amazing lifting off his shoulders because by the grace of God, they took him seriously and they sought to obey. They sought to repent. And so his fear, Titus's fear turned into joy and relief. And this same joy is now shared with Paul, as he said there, right? We rejoice still more at the joy of Titus. Joy of Titus turned into the joy of Paul, who also sighs a big sigh of relief because we learn that he's been boasting to Titus. Yeah, I'll be honest, when I first read this, I, in my heart, my sinful heart was like, Paul, you're just sending Titus to do your dirty work. Because it almost seems like he's like, oh, Titus, they'll receive you well. They're godly people. They'll for sure repent. Good luck, brother. Right? And, and so you see him, he sighs because he's like, oh, they, they actually did it. Right? There's a genuineness of faith. They, they received the word well. And he wasn't put to shame is what he said. They proved me correct in how they responded. And as a result, Titus's affection for the Corinthians blossoms. And so there's this almost like a love fest where, where he's like, I'm sorry, here's the rebuke. They're like, oh, we're sorry. Like, we, we shouldn't have hurt you. And so they're, they're growing in love and affection. And he goes back and that same love and affection and joy begins to, sh to spread to Paul. And it leads to his joy growing. I, we, we experienced this a few weeks ago. Uh, we had a, one of our, our old friends, a, a pastor in the city, come to speak at our youth uh, fellowship on Friday. And the same guy had, had spoken at our retreat several years ago. Uh, and one of our kids, unprompted, went up to him and was like, hey, Pastor Tim, I just want to let you know, a few years ago when you came to speak at our retreat, that was the first time I came to know Jesus, right? And, and yeah, I wasn't part of the conversation. I was just walking by and I overheard and I eavesdropped and I looked over and I just look at his face and there's this look on his face. He's just like, 
you, you know, you can't describe that joy. And he's like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. Like, you know, praise God. And at and, and just that moment, I was sharing his joy. Right? And, and we, you know, we don't want to say anything in front of the kid because we don't want to make it awkward for the kid. Uh, and so we waited till later after the night was over and we came back and we're like, hey, we heard. And, you know, all the counselors who were there, we started just looking at each other like, my God is great. My God is great. That, that is so incredible, right? We were sharing in his joy. And that joy was being transferred to all of us. It was, it was something that was infectious, right? And that's the amazing thing about Christian joy. It's something to be celebrated. It's something to be shared with each other. If that is the case for God's people, if joy is to be shared amongst God's people, maybe we need to ask ourselves this first question. Is there someone who needs this joy? Right? Is there someone who God has placed on your heart who you recognize is hurting, who's struggling, going through a, a rough season? Do you recognize that we as God's people are called to be instruments of joy? That we are called to seek them out and share with them how God is working. Right? We have the ability, the privilege of bringing that joy. Just like Titus brought it for Paul, we also should be seeking each other to share joy, meaning that should be an intentional part of who we are. How am I sharing that joy of Christ with someone today? Right? He specifically, God specifically uses us to help one another. He speaks through us. We are to be the audible voice of God to each other in how we share joy. How many of us do that? How many of us comfort each other? Who's God calling you to share joy with? But also, and I'll end here, it might sound weird, but we need to learn how to party. Sounds weird. I think Luke 15 helps us here, where Jesus is teaching these multiple parables, three in a row, where he tells the parable of the lost sheep, right? One guy loses his sheep. He leaves the 99 to go seek out that, that one lost sheep. And what happens when he finds that sheep? He goes home and he calls up all his friends and they celebrate together. They rejoice together. He literally says, come and rejoice with me, right? And then there's also this part where it says, in that moment, and Jesus is teaching his story, there's heavenly, there's a basically heavenly celebration going on over the salvation and repentance of one lost sinner. All right, so that not only there's, there's an earthly celebration and, and rejoicing and partying going on, but there is a heavenly one. Then he follows that up with a parable of the lost coin, where a woman lost one coin, looks for it, finds it, and what does she do? She puts into Wells Fargo and makes sure it, that it increases by 15 cents every year. No, she calls all her friends and says, come and rejoice with me. They rejoice together follows that up with the prodigal son. We all know that story. It's a very famous story where the son leaves, right? And the father is waiting for his son to return. I'm simplifying here, right? But the son returns one day. And what does the son, what what does the father do when his son returns? Calls all the friends and says, let's party for my son who was lost is now found. And they rejoice together. The thing about Christian joy is it's not meant to be experienced by ourselves. But rather, this joy is something to be celebrated together. In other words, we are called to party with each other, to celebrate together, to rejoice together when we see the, the, the work of salvation being done. That when we see people coming to know Christ, we are to actually come together regularly to rejoice. This is why the church is so crucial, that we are called to have these celebrations together. Because it's how God designed us to experience joy. It's together as a family. And, and I think that's a rebuke that I need. I think that we need a, as a people of God, 
Like when we come in these spaces, it should be a mood, yes, first of repentance, there's somberness there, but there should be celebration and rejoicing in how we see God working. And that's to be an integral part of who we are. That's why when a non-Christian steps through our doors and it seems like a worship service of celebration, it makes them wonder, why are you so happy? Right? What is there to celebrate? And that's when we get to tell them and share with them the good news of Christ and how it has actually produced life within me and this family here. My friends, rejoicing needs to be a part of who we are because it's something we share. And this joy, this joy needs to be a defining aspect of who we are. We are people who celebrate how we've been rescued from sin. We are people who celebrate how we've been raised to new life. And this is the same joy that will carry us through our darkest moments and will bring us to the very end. Our friends, where's your joy? Let me pray for us. Father, we, we need to be reminded of this joy that you've given us. In our afflictions and our burdens and our sufferings, so often we can get so caught up in the pain that we are experiencing. While those are real pains, while those afflictions are real, God, they don't have the final word because of your gospel because of your son who has died and risen again to give us new life and new hope that cannot be taken from us. And that's the joy, God, that, that you, we ask that you would fill our hearts with each day. God, for my friends who need comfort, would you remind them that you are the God of all comfort who comforts us in our affliction. You are the God who walks with us in our pain and you are the God who raises us up and resurrects us from the dead. You are the God whom we will walk with one day and see face to face. We will get to hold on to. God, would you transform us individually, but also corporately. You would make us a people of joy. Because we simply cannot keep quiet. Because of the joy of grace that we've received from you is so magnificent.